Good morning. Excited to be concluding Isaiah 53 today as we walk through about four verses in particular studying uh, what the prophet Isaiah had to say 700 years before Jesus was born to Mary. I love Marvel. Anyone? Okay, me and Keith. I love Marvel. I love Marvel comics. I love Marvel superheroes. I love Marvel anti-heroes. I love Marvel villains. Oh, snap. I love Marvel movies. And in Iron Man 1, I'm going to take you back, during the first of many end credit scenes that we would end up seeing in all the Marvel movies. So if you ever go see a Marvel movie, you don't leave when the movie's over. You wait till the, the end credit scenes are over. And the very first one, we see Tony Stark walking that's Iron Man, walking through his living room, and in the shadows, you hear a very familiar voice, if you've seen Quentin Tarantino movies, and you hear Samuel L. Jackson. And he starts to talk, and he comes out of the shadows with an eye patch on his eye, and he says that he is Nick Fury, who leads S.H.I.E.L.D., which is a government uh, organization that kind of uh, uses and utilizes superheroes. And in this movie, Tony and, uh, or in this end credit scene, Tony and Nick start to have this conversation, and Tony thinks he's the only superhero, and what Nick says to him is he doesn't even understand that he's a part of a much bigger universe. And Nick was referring to what many of us nerds know as the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That was 2008, and now we're in 2018, 10 years later, and there have been tons of movies that have been made. In the MCU, there is Iron Man 1, there is Iron Man 2, Incredible Hulk, Thor, Captain America, the first Avenger, the Avengers, Iron Man 3, Thor 2, Captain America, Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, Avengers, Age of Ultron, Ant-Man, Captain America, Civil War, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Doctor Strange, Spider-Man Homecoming, Black Panther, Thor, Ragnarok, Infinity War, Ant-Man and Wasp, and soon we'll have Captain Marvel and Avengers 4, Endgame, what, what. Here's the thing. With each movie and each one to come, there is a connection upon all of these movies. When Nick Fury said, hey, Tony, you're not the only superhero, little did we know that in Iron Man 2, there would be a Captain America shield in the background of Iron Man's Batcave, if you will, which started to point to the fact that there were going to be a lot of other characters in this MCU. And as you watch these movies, as you engage in them, if you know they're a part of a greater thing, if they're bigger than just that one movie, you start to look for stuff. And there's this term that us nerds use. It's called Easter eggs, all right? And you're looking for these Easter eggs. For a lot of us, we as Christians who read the Bible are like those who just watch one of the movies without knowing the greater universe, without knowing how uh, Thor connects to Captain America, without realizing how Black Panther connects to Spider-Man, and so on and so forth. And we will read the scriptures and not understand the depth of the fact that the scriptures are intertwined with one another and that there are, pun intended, Easter eggs throughout scripture. We miss the beauty of the greater story. Isaiah 53 is by far one of my own personal favorite chapters in all of the Bible because it does such an incredible job of explanation of justification and the expectation and exaltation of the Messiah, the one who was to come and set up his kingdom. 
as we've walked through this passage verse by verse, not only does it do a great, uh, in great detail, it explains this future event, but the understanding of this confession that every follower of Jesus makes. Christians disagree on a lot, don't we? You, you guys don't know this? All right, spoiler. Christians disagree on a lot. Worship style, preaching style, Bible study, small groups, exegetical preaching, teaching, topical sermons, predestination, free will, perseverance of the saints, ministry methodology. Should Sunday mornings be for those who are yet to know Jesus or should they be for equipping only the saints? What does equipping mean? What does the saint mean? What translation of the Bible should be used? How many songs should be sung? Should we dip the bread or drink from the cup in communion? These are just a few of the things that Christians disagree upon. And for 2,000 years, people who have been following Jesus have committed their lives to Jesus to daily deny themselves, pick up their cross, and make their lives about making much of Jesus. They've had different ideas, different priorities, different views on eschatology, that's just a seminary word for end times, and ecclesiology, how the church should be governed and ran. But through all of that, there is one confession that every true follower of Jesus must and does proclaim, that we are saved, justified, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. And that confession comes from the entire New Testament, but also from this chapter in Isaiah 53 that was written 700 years before the great advent, God's only son being born to the Virgin Mary and living a perfect life that none of us could ever live on our own. This passage shows the future promise of the suffering servant who would come and walk among us. This passage gives what feels like an eyewitness account of what Jesus experienced on Calvary. So let's go. Isaiah 53. We're going to start in verse 8 real quick and read it. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished, Isaiah wrote. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. All right, let's, let's talk a little. The Messiah was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgression, the sins of, Isaiah says, his people. The servant lost his life to be a substitutionary object of wrath in the place of guess who? Us, sinners, who by that substitution will receive salvation and the righteousness of God given to us, imputed to us. Here, here let me make it simple. Jesus traded his life for ours. At the heart of the gospel, he traded his life for ours. The great exchange took place. He said that he would give up his rights, his status, and his rights standing before the Lord so that sinners would have a gateway to God, so that we would have an opportunity to come into contact with a holy and perfect God. It is this self-sacrifice that's at the heart of the gospel. The heart of justification and the heart of God that tends to be incomplete competition with how the world does anything. Can we be real about this? We make it about us. We even claim that God wants that. We trade risk and faith for fear and preference, trying to hide from any real suffering 
We just don't want to have to sacrifice anything. They made his grave with the wicked. The man who lived a perfect life, there was no deceit found in his mouth, but he was put to death, and sin was found in him. Not that he committed it, but he died a sinner's death between two thieves. We have the one cross here, but on Calvary, there were three crosses, one on both sides of the cross that Jesus hung on, and anyone who was crucified was not expected to be buried in a very honoring way, most who were executed just had their bodies discarded at the edge of town in Jerusalem in a place called Gehenna, which was the name that Jesus used when he was alluding to hell, a place where you were discarded. And with a rich man in his death, there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a Pharisee. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was a top dog when it came to those who were religious. And he asked to take Jesus' body and bury him in his own tomb. In fact, we see this in Mark 15. I'm not making this up. It says this, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage, don't miss that, and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already, that he had already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that was cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Why is this important? Because not only does Isaiah talk about this, but this is scandalous for a religious man, a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin to ask for a dead body because in the Jewish culture, Jews did not touch dead bodies. They were considered unclean. But this one, he was known as a blasphemer. But Joseph took the body. It was awarded to him, and he placed him in his own tomb. I hear all the time from people that maybe have never really read the Bible or really understand what Christians believe that Jesus never claimed that he was God. Ever heard this? What I think they mean is that when they hear scenarios in the gospel of where people asked him essentially, who do you think he, you are, Jesus never stood on a pew, this is a Mike Miller right here, on a pew or on a street corner and yelled out, I am the Lord, I am God, I am the Alpha. He never did it that way. And because no one thinks that he said that, People just assume that he didn't believe or say that he really was God. But when someone says to me, Jesus didn't really say that he was God. I'm a smart aleck. If you don't know me, you will. Uh, I tend, my first response to someone who says, Jesus never said that he was God, at least internally, my response is, then why did he get crucified? Jesus was put to death for what some deemed as blasphemy, claiming that he was God. And it angered those who did not believe him, but especially by those who had been doing all the good they could to justify themselves. And here comes Jesus and says, no, 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 what you're doing doesn't work. What you need to do is trust me. John 10, verse 24 through 30 says it this way. So the Jews gathered around him, Jesus, and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, make it obvious Jesus answered, I did tell you, 
and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Boom, bah. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch, snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Tell us, are you the Christ, they ask? Are you the anointed one? And the Jews may not have understood that this man standing right before them was God with skin. But they did understand, based on Isaiah's prophecy, based on what we read in the Old Testament, is that the Messiah was coming. The king was going to come, and he was going to build his kingdom. But Jesus takes it a step further. He doesn't just say that he represents the Father. What does he say? He says, the Father and I are one. So if you came and told me, well, I'm God, like you said about yourself that you were God, I would think you were crazy, all right? Chances are I would think you're crazy. So you can't get that upset with these Jews, except for they weren't really paying attention to who Jesus is. So what's their response? Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Huh. Now, here's the thing. If Jesus isn't God, this is absolutely blasphemy. But as every Christian knows and understands and puts their hope in, we don't worship Jesus just because of some good teachings or even just because he died on a cross, but because of the confirmation that happened in history, but we'll get to that in just a second. Although, Isaiah says, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Jesus not only did nothing to warrant his arrest, his prosecution, his crucifixion, but he didn't even have a word that came out of his mouth that was incorrect or sinful. Anyone? I have today, and I'm at church. Be real, there's so much sin in me. And one of the things that I want us to understand as a congregation, if you're visiting, <laughs> you get to hear this too. I want us to understand that there's a problem and the problem isn't that we've just done a couple of things wrong. The problem is that our heart is sinful, and we need God to intervene. And ever since the fall, he's intervened. Ever since the fall, ever since we've created a chasm between us and him, God has been intervene, intervening and giving us the opportunity to know who he is through his word and through walking with us and sending his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And Jesus' heart was pure, so his words were pure. Verse 10. Ooh. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. 
I want you to think about that right now as we celebrate Christmas. Are any of us celebrating the Lord crushing Jesus? God destroying, if you will, his son and putting his son to death? In other translations, it's even fiercer. It says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Come again? How can that be? How can a loving God not only let bad things happen to, quotes, good people, but how could he ever crush his one and only son? That doesn't seem like the God that we worship. That doesn't seem like a happy-go-lucky good God, does it? There's a quote that's stuck with me ever since I heard it by a great theologian who went to be with Jesus this past year. R.C. Sproul said it this way, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, it only happened once, and he volunteered. The point is that no one's good, not even one, other than Christ Jesus. And he volunteered to hang on the cross for us. See, we've made judgments on situations based on our perception and our circumstance and what we're accustomed to. You know, someone who hasn't eaten in four days in Somalia has a different understanding of when the internet doesn't work. They see it a little differently. And many people who attend a church and are part of Christian community tend to lose sight of what is most important. Here's the question I want you to wrestle with. Where do you stand with God? Don't look around. Don't worry about the person with you or the person that didn't come with you. Where do you stand with God? That eternal question is it's eternal, but it's also a daily question. Where do you stand with God? Because your status with God means far more than your current circumstance. But here is my fear that you think that if you do sign wrong, all of a sudden God doesn't love you. In fact, Scripture teaches on this consistently about did Jesus have to go to the cross again? No. He died once for your sin, past, present, and future. And it is it's honestly spiritual arrogance to just assume that you are good because you know some words of the gospel and then want to move on to the deeper stuff. Here's the thing. If you don't like the gospel, this is a terrible church for you. But it's through the understanding, leaning into, and embracing the fact that your justification is completely and unashamedly and fully a gift from God that we have our being. Once you embrace justification by grace, you live differently, you give of yourself consistently, and you grow exponentially, but all three take place when you truly embrace justification by grace. But without that truth framing and directing your view of spirituality, you'll be like a dog chasing its tail, wondering why you keep being given the same circumstances and challenges and trials, and you're like, why do I have to deal with this again? Isaiah says that he has put him to grief. Who has put him to grief? God the Father. He found pleasure, all right, watch this, in putting the suffering servant to death. That doesn't sound right, does it? We think that God is love, which he absolutely is, but what we need to understand is that the sin that we commit is gross. It is horrific. The sin that you have in the back of your mind, the sin that you want to do, the sin that you do is so evil. It is so wrong. 
It is so against the character of God that it must have wrath to destroy it. You're like, Tim, baby Jesus, why are you talking about this? Because our sin must be paid for, but there's some good news, church. The young man I met with this week kept talking about, he called it a hiccup, <laughs> a hiccup. All right, so his hiccup that he, he was sharing a story with me, and he's going to share it at a, at a ministry, and he was telling me a story, and he kept talking about this hiccup where he kept having sexual relations with someone that wasn't his spouse. I was like, bro, that's not a hiccup. That's like an aneurysm, bro. But here's the thing that frustrated me. Sin is so gross that it put Jesus to death. And that was the only thing that could pay for it, that would make it right. And so let's not treat our sin, let's not just wink at our sin. Don't treat your sin like it's an oops, put it to death. You're not going to be perfect, but you pursue the perfect one who is. And you must understand that the offense that you've committed against God and his ideal actually has consequences. None of us are perfect, but here's what I've seen over the past year. People who know they're not perfect, pursuing holiness. Oh, that's been so beautiful to watch. Not that they would just raise their hands during worship. That doesn't make you any more spiritual than anyone who doesn't. But that they would pursue God's ideal for them in their relationships, in their finances, in the way that they interact with individuals. And pursuit of holiness, I believe, is a symptom of the Holy Spirit. So, a little history lesson, going to nerd out a little bit. There were five different types of offerings that in the Levitical law and the sacrificial system had. There were these five different laws that we read in Leviticus that Jews had to experience. Here they were. We talked a little bit about them last week, but there was five. Burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, and guilt offering. And the burnt offering, sin, and guilt offerings were all animal sacrifices that God allowed for. Those three that were animal sacrifices were actually pictures of the deadly results of sin. There had to be death that was done because sin produces death. But they were also hopeful in a God that would allow for a substitute to die in a sinner's place. And the sacrifice of an animal was a foreshadowing of the fact that God would bring his perfect sacrifice that would die once and for all. It was just that none of those animals were the actual substitute that they needed. They only pointed to the reality that there would be a final substitute. But of those three offerings where the animals were involved, the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, the final one, the guilt offering was most comprehensive. That fifth one, the guilt offering, it adds a dimension that others don't have. Here's what it had. It had a, the characteristic of the guilt offering, or sometimes called the trespass offering, was the offering that added the dimension of restitution or satisfaction or propitiation, which is a verb that means to be satisfied. A guilt offering was required in cases when, when something was done wrong, either unintentionally or unknowingly. And Jesus was the guilt offering for us. But now the text takes a turn. Isaiah 53, it starts to confirm the hope that every Christian, every follower of Jesus, every person who has received the salvation of their souls has. And if you thought I got excited about Marvel, check this out. 
he shall see his offspring. To Jewish culture, offspring was spoken about in a spiritual sense, and it meant one's disciples. Jesus invested in 12. He went 11 for 12. I like to remind people of that. And of those 11 uneducated, frustratingly stupid, I mean fearful and ordinary men, by the power of the Spirit of God and the power of the message of the gospel, the world has been transformed by this mission that Jesus gave these 11 men. And he shall prolong his days. The suffering servant who was crushed by the Father, who was crucified on two pieces of wood, would see his offspring. I want you to see the Easter egg in this. His days shall prolong. See, in order for that to happen, because Isaiah was just talking about the fact that he would be put to death, he would be crushed by the Father. What Isaiah seems to be saying is that he must not be dead. And it's not that Jesus' death didn't take, but he was dead. He might have died, but my Lord didn't stay dead. Could you imagine the Jews hearing Isaiah's words in 650 B.C.? I highly doubt any of them assumed resurrection, right? As a natural response to death, it's not something that they would assume. It's probably not something that I would assume. I used Mike for service. Mike gets to do it again. So Mike and I are hanging out, and we're here at the office, uh, at the church building, and then I go, all right, bro, I'm leaving. This is going to get morbid real quick. So you ready? All right, cool. So I leave, and then my wife texts Mike and goes, hey, where's Tim? He's like, I don't know. He left like a few hours ago. I haven't, I, I saw him leave. And then as I left, something happens and I die, right? Like I said, morbid. And I die. And then we have a funeral and a few of you come, I hope. And, and <laughs> the gospel's preached, it better be. And then they take my body and they put it in a coffin and they take that coffin and they take it down to the cemetery and now they've put me in a hole and they've thrown dirt on it and everyone says some final words and then they leave. And then a few days later, Mike misses me. So he decides to go down to the cemetery. And as he's walking to the cemetery, he sees dirt kind of on both sides of where I was put. And he starts to notice that there's a hole where I was placed. So he runs up and he looks down. All of a sudden, he sees this hole. He sees the coffin. The door's open. I'm not there. Is his first response? Obviously, Tim rose from the dead. No. That's just not what we assume. And as Isaiah was saying this to the Jews in 650 B.C., he probably had no idea what he was talking about, but oh, what a beautiful Easter egg. When someone's been hurt, when someone's become unconscious, someone's heart stops beating, what do we do? We pray. We have hope that somehow that person will be rejuvenated, revived, and resurrected, don't we? We don't assume it'll happen, but there's this hope that's still there. This is a hope that comes from a godly source, church. One who has put into a, the world a natural set of rules that every once in a while are superseded by a supernatural God. You ever notice how the sun goes up every day and then at night it goes down and then in the morning it comes up? I think that's to point out something. Resurrection is not natural. Resurrection is supernatural, and none of us should ever forget that as we talk about Easter at Christmas. 
I probably sat down and talked with more people about the resurrection of Jesus than any other one specific topic ever. In fact, a few weeks ago, Kevin, our very own Kevin, shared about how we got to talk about the resurrection in Isaiah at Panda Express, and the Lord drew him to himself over chow mein. Get to lead a ministry called Compelled where the logo is an empty tomb. The resurrection was the one piece of info in Christianity as an atheist that I felt like I had to look more into because I could totally make fun of Christians and come up with reasons why they didn't really believe what they believed. But there was this one event in history that changed everything. The resurrection being the point made more sense to me as a person who thought Christians were a bunch of holier-than-thou do-gooders who wanted to rain judgment on others who didn't share in the same ideals than any other point in Christianity. And I'm so glad that God wired me in a very annoying way that I can't let things go. If you know me, you know this. When I don't understand something, I have to engage with it. And when I feel it is important enough to engage and understand it, I will not let it go. And I need to come to a place intellectually that can reconcile things. I've done that with everything. So as an atheist, as someone who wanted nothing to do with God, thought you all were crazy... I started to look into the resurrection. I started to see what all the parties involved started to do. And I started to think about if Jesus actually rose from the dead, what would you do? I started to see that these people were worshiping a lonely carpenter from Nazareth, not because of something he said, but something he did. The world without, and even though Jesus never wrote a word that he he never wrote a word that he wrote down. Other wrote, others wrote down his words. This man who was born at the right time, according to the Old Testament, in the right place, lived the right life, and decided to go to death for the sins of mankind at the right time, in the right place, while building and developing disciples that would continue the work that he started. All of this happened, but let's just say, for argument's sake, maybe it was just a coincidence What if he willingly went to death for something he believed and the story ended there? What if he just died on a cross? Do you really think Christianity would continue? Do you really think we'd still be worshiping Jesus as a resurrected Savior? Do you think any of us would have come up with the resurrection? No, we wouldn't have. And if all he did was die, he was just a martyr. But he wasn't a martyr, he was a substitute. The reason we know that is because on the third day, he rose from the dead. So for you and I, if we ever attempt to try to justify ourselves, it's because we don't want to trust that what he did was enough. In fact, these words changed my mind. It was looking into the history, but the Bible actually confirming it. Luke 24, 1 through 7. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, that's Sunday, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. What? But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. What, what? While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. 
if Jesus has not prolonged his days, if he has not risen, if he is not who he says that he is, each of us are still in our sins. Each of us are still without a savior. And each of us are still without hope. But history and the Bible and the Spirit of God all testify to the same truth, that he has risen. And his resurrection means that there is not a Christian who has to have a blind faith. They have to be willing to look into the evidence, to see the footprints throughout history that lead us towards a suffering Savior who did for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. So he says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Um, do you understand that the Lord's will will be done? It will. Lots of wills up in there. That many. The suffering that Jesus endured accomplished this. Why? Because this was the Lord's will to crush him. You may even today say that you believe this. You believe that God's will will be done, but you probably have this place in the back of your brain where you think that you dictate how that will is going to be done. God's plan, his mission will not be thwarted. And you may even think amen, but are you part of the solution or the problem? He will do it. And you Christians have the opportunity to have him do it using you or in spite of you. So please check your heart. Do you want to be part of making much of Jesus through your obedience or making much of him through your rebellion? Because God can get glory either way. Obedience to the one you call Lord will make more of an impact in you and those around you than you could ever imagine. So let me get cornbread English. You ready? Those who want to know Jesus, those who claim Jesus Christ, those that are Christians, pursue doing what he says. I don't know how much more simple I can make that. So if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you never do what he says, you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that any of us do it perfectly. In fact, we all do it terribly. But if you don't want to pursue holiness, you don't want to pursue the words that he says, check yourself. Because what a waste of time to come sit in a church, hear about Jesus, hear about a substitutionary atonement and not do what he says, even though he did for you what you could not do for yourself. All right, that was free. Isaiah 53, 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. This death of the servant, the humiliation, the wrath placed upon him was not in vain. Because Christ suffered and was bruised and was put to grief and made a sacrifice for sin because of all of this, the anguish of his soul, it was given to him the powerful results of his suffering. It was the formation of the church, which you and I get to live with, live with forever and ever in heaven. But Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And this is in NLT, and I almost never use NLT, all right? Because it's just simple. It says, Paul says, you must have the same attitude, that of Christ Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, 
he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Nothing is so effectual in turning men to righteousness as teaching the true knowledge of God. So please don't discount the holiness of God. Please don't discount explaining the holiness of God, telling the truth about God. Because when people hear about the real God, God draws people to himself. He just does. Someone asked me, are you going to talk about Jesus on Christmas Eve? I was like, yeah, I'll start then. That's why we say the word never comes back void. We speak highly of our God because he's entered into the fray. He's intervened. We know that when we share the good news of Jesus with anyone, it matters. When you love people, when you share the gospel in love, when you teach others about the character of God, you will see God use it in some way or another. I know your heart starts to beat fast. I know your face starts to get red when you go to share who Jesus is. I get it. You know why? Because there's eternal implications when you speak the truth of God. The testimony of your belief is judged much more on how you live than what you say. We judge people. Let's just be real. Or you can think I'm the only one. <laughs> Whatever. But the testimony of your belief is judged much more on how you live than what you say. The Savior does two things that I want us to understand. He imputes his righteousness upon those who know, love, and follow him. And he gives us right standing with God. And he takes the burden of our sin. So Christian, if you claim Christ... Stop living in guilt. There was a guilt offering. Stop living in sin. There was a sin offering. And it was taken from you by this God-sized sacrifice by the death of God's only son. You don't have to live in guilt and shame, but you can live for the Savior. Verse 12, we're almost done. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Verse 12, this one verse, it's an epilogue of verses 1 through 11. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Jesus' humiliation awarded him the exaltation above every name, and his self-sacrifice earned us right standing before God. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus poured out his soul to death, church was identified with sinners in his death, but also spiritually, he became not just a man, but a sinner in identification, so that he could and would bear our iniquities, carry their, our sin, and be the satisfaction of our trespassing outside of God's ideal. Okay, real talk. Is that something that makes you feel as if you're loved? 
Is that something that makes you feel cherished by God? Do you understand that you are so important to God who knew you before you were even formed in your mother's womb? Anyone not born of a mother? Or do you still place your identity and your worth in what creation thinks of you? What people think of you? What sinners think of you? What those, by those who are trying to save themselves, think of you? Or do you think that their view is more important than the king who left the comforts of heaven to come live among us and live a perfect life, die in our place and rise from the dead? This text is a confession. This text is deep. It is in the past tense, in the future tense, it's in the completed tense. This text is prophetic because it speaks in a time where Israel's spiritual arrogance wouldn't let them see the beauty of the future king that would come because he's not how they imagined him. Worship team, you can come on up. I want you guys to think about this for a second. Imagine that I said in two minutes, now real quick, look out the doors real fast. Just look at back behind you. Imagine that I said, now you can look back up here. Imagine in two minutes I said that through those doors would walk a man into the worship center that would be about six feet tall. He would be wearing a rainbow afro. Below that he would have oversized glasses, hipster style, with a fake mustache and a fake nose, and below that he would be wearing a polka-dotted shirt with rainbow suspenders, and he'd have really large baggy pants known as hammer pants. He'd also be wearing white sneakers from Reebok with the pump. Anyone remember this? Come on. Now you talk back. All right. Now imagine I said that. Imagine I was that specific about what this person would be like, and then in two minutes, that person, exactly the way I described him, walked through the door. Is there anyone in this room that would go, oh, Tim's obviously prophetic. He can obviously see into the future. Nope. You know what you'd think? You'd think, Tim set that up. Isaiah is so specific. He speaks of the future and suffer, suffering servant in such a detailed way from the Lord that we need to know that, yes, God does see into the future. He not only sees it, he's there. And here is the point. God sets you up. The fact that you've heard his gospel the fact that you've been into a context where the death of Jesus being the justification for your sin, not you trying to work your way to God, but God working his way to you, because of those things you can be made right, God sets you up. And so are you willing to trust that? Or do you want to keep trying to jump across the Grand Canyon on your own to try to reach him in your own flesh? God loves you, church. And this Christmas season is not just, we understand that he loves us, not just because God created you and has a wonderful plan for your life, not because the Old Testament just testifies about a future king, not because, uh, because this baby was born to a virgin in meager beginnings, or even just because he lived a sinless life or died a sinner's death on a cross. 
But we understand that he loves us because our king's days prolonged. Because our king has risen. Because when he rose from the dead, there was a stamp across your forehead spiritually that says, paid in full. Resurrection was your receipt that you understand that your sins have been paid for. And because he's alive, you can be made alive.